If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the March 29th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Although IMRU celebrates the contribution of women every week, this is our final salute to Women's History Month 2021. Tonight, we delve deep into the IMRU archives for an interview with iconic activist Jewel Tice Williams, examine this week's streaming pick, Girl King, revisit the legendary Vicki Marlene, and talk about another streaming choice with Margaret Cho. But first, we're dipping into the IMRU archives for an old lesbian interview. That's an old interview, not an interview with an old lesbian. From 2001... Here's Kate Clinton. Let's get the preliminaries out of the way. You are an admitted homosexual. Yes. And a self-described humorist. Mm -hmm. It was a typo. All right. I mean, it's a great idea. I am a feminist humorist, but it ran together. I was trying to type it, and I'm not a great typist because I went to Catholic school, and we really didn't have typewriters. We'd like start the class with a prayer for typewriters. So I didn't really type well. So I was typing feminist humorist, and it just ran together, humorist, and it's F-U-M-E. R-I-S-T, for me, because that's an idea of fuming, threatening to burst into flames at any moment. Is there a club of other funny feminists, or is it a very lonely life? No, it's huge. It's huge. We have an annual convention, actually in Houston. It's in the summer, so that many of the fumerists can wear minks. It's a very Republican idea. It's huge. There's just thousands and thousands. Actually, you know, that whole thing about the women's movement didn't have a sense of humor. I think guys felt left out. We were hysterical, sliding down refrigerators, laughing, and they just felt left out. So they said, oh, the women's movement has no sense of humor, and they just felt left out. So there's, there's thousands of us screaming, laughing all the time. On top of feminist, and, and no, that's a bad picture. Um, oh, no, bes- it's quite lovely if you're a top. Besides feminist, you're a member of, of another group not known for humor, lesbians. In fact, there was an, hey, article, hey, there hey. Was an article in The Advocate mm-hmm. recently, which... So it which, must be true. So Go it must ahead, be true. Yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, I think there are lots of funny lesbians, or there are lots of lesbians who appreciate other funny lesbians. That's me. And they come to the show, and they laugh their heads off. So another stereotype dashed to the ground. Crashed. What other things are just sticking in your craw? Do you have a craw? I have a craw. Is stuff sticking there? Yeah, there's a lot of stickage in the craw. (laughs) Where exactly is the craw located? What is sticking in my craw? I guess the fact that, that anybody could say 
Bush is reelected. You know, they were talking about Bush being reelected in four years. He wasn't elected in the first place. I have to remind people. I guess what's sticking in my craw is the complete glossing over more lies on more lies. And I think part of the job of this particular humorist will be to keep uh, their little toes to the fire and to keep reminding people of the actual truth. I now know what it must have felt like for years to be a Clinton hater. Because, I mean, I just see one of the Bushes on television and I just start screaming. I'm like, I have Bush Tourette syndrome. It's like shrieking. You know, and I was complaining to an African-American friend when I was like, oh my, I so, feel so disenfranchised. I feel so powerless. And she looked at me like, hello, welcome to our club. Now you can laugh out loud. Don't be stifling this. I'll insert laughter later. I don't have a good laugh. And okay. I, I have a, a laugher that comes in. Oh, okay. Professional. All right. yeah, yeah. Probably a lesbian. You know, you know <laughs> they're, they're a funny people. They're funny. Yes. That you way. know, George W. Bush would say, you're being one of those negative Democrats. Because, you know, George is a uniter, not a divider. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got Dick, Bush, and Colin. It's sort of like a lower GI series, not necessarily a presidential administration. Dick actually surprised me, and uh, he lived <laughs> through the excitement of the inauguration. But when Jim Lehrer from the News Hour on the vice presidential debate asked both Cheney and Lieberman what they thought about civil unions, I thought Cheney actually was kind of positive. Apparently, Lieberman was still praying about it. But Cheney said that he was sort of leaning toward it. It was okay with him. That surprised me enormously. But I don't imagine that his lovely wife, Lon Cheney, will go for it in a big way. Because although Dick has a gay daughter, apparently his wife doesn't. It's an interesting thing. It's a family value. As a former English teacher, Mm -hmm. it seems like that you'd be a great advisor to this particular president. Well, again, the whole Bush one was like just being present at the death of language. So this is, uh, I think, more of the same. We'll experience wild syntactic rides. But apparently he's doing better now that he had the teleprompters actually installed in his retinas. You know, he's a very good reader. And that was, I really think, a benefit of his mom's, uh, Barbara's program of Just Spell No. Your partner is a well-known gay activist, and mm-hmm. you've been together 91 gay years. Mm-hmm. How do you make that work? How do you keep the moving bands away from the curb? Well, for the first five years, we were at long distance. So that really made us want to live together. And You should identify her in case people think it might be, you know, Rosie O'Donnell or, okay. or someone. Right. I am with Urvashi Vad, and she is a gay activist. Motormouth, brilliant. I love being with her because I finally feel like I'm at the right table. You know, like when your place is and everybody's having better time at the other table? This is like being at the right table. She's really smart, and scheduling is our biggest problem because she travels a lot, I travel a lot. So I guess we really cherish the time that we're together. Oh, no, I don't just guess that. I know we do. So the secret to a a good, strong lesbian relationship (laughs) has just been lots of time away from each other. No, 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 no. Actually, it's really painful to be away so much. And you live in Provincetown? We have a house in Provincetown. Um, I bought it in 1990 before everything quadrupled in price. Uh, Otherwise, I would never be there. But uh, actually, we're living in New York now. We moved there when I started working for the Rosie O'Donnell Show. And we stayed on, and Irvashi formed the Policy Institute for the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, which is a think tank. I designed the think tank tops, which I'm quite proud of. And she is head of propaganda, basically. And they've put out wonderful, wonderful propaganda. Her idea is that they would become like the Heritage Institute of the gay movement. And they've really done wonderful, wonderful studies. I mean, they actually study the numbers, you know, about gay wealth and is it true? And uh, they just released a new wonderful study on gay aging and what it means for our community. So they're really hip to the trip and working, working what? 
Are you getting older right now? I know. I'm still thinking about the words think tank top. (laughs) (laughs) They're cute. They're ribbed. And everybody wears Ribbed for their pleasure. Yes. Thank you very much. Good night. I'll be here all week. Okay. You've recently released a brand new exciting sixth CD. Mm Mm-hmm called Read These Lips, which I think is perfect for a Bush administration. And it is sort of a record of what I've been doing for the last two years. That is my whole idea of CDs, really. It's, and you call them CDs now, you don't call them records. But all my CDs have been sort of a record of what I've been doing so that I can go on to the next. And it's fun. I mean, it has my usual themes of politics and papacy and media and the new technologies. And people laugh. Tricked them again. Because it's timeless, timeless humor, even though it's political. Timeless. It never changes. You know, you can't. Opposition is good. And let's not forget that the wonderful saying, I think it was Che Guevara who said, optimism is the true weapon of the revolutionary. And boy, we have to be optimistic in these next four years. Only four years. People say to me, boy, this is great stuff. This is just so exciting for you. Boy, you must be so happy to have all this. But I really find it difficult to watch. And uh, the, I mean, I'm trying to be more optimistic. I think when Ascroft was nominated and just the coalition of people that got together that we've been talking about forever, you know, the gay groups and uh, the ACLU and NOW and NARAL, and they were all appeared together and actually working together, I thought, oh, thank God, it's happening. So I, I cling to those optimistic moments. But I'll tell you, it's worn me out 20 years and then this. Ugh. But I'll keep doing it. This has been a conversation with Kate Clinton. To find out when she's coming to a city near you, aim your internet browser to www.kateclinton.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Some folks call me crazy. Hey, some folks call me wild. I used to be called womanish even when I was a child. Cause I got big old fris, baby. Yeah, I got big old fris, baby. Okay, so political humor dates pretty quick, but in D.C., it's just the names that change. Kate's touring schedule is paused for quarantine. Find more information at kateclinton.com. Here's another fancy interview we've kept flash frozen in our vault. We thawed it out and present it fresh to you, the delightful Margaret Cho. Comedian Margaret Cho is a warrior on the front line of her own personal sexual revolution and perhaps the funniest person on planet Earth. Introducing Miss Margaret Cho. She's the Asian ballet girl who's got much to show. She kind of looks like Connie Chung, but in her own slutty way. I don't know if I'm a bottom because it turns me on or if I'm a bottom because I'm lazy. It's Margaret Cho. Hi, this is Margaret Cho, star of the new summer blockbuster, Notorious CHO. Her new film, Notorious CHO, is unrated by the MPAA for good reason. And as I gaze into her sweet, innocent face, I can't help but wonder how much of the new film is based on actual events. People don't understand. It really is all true, especially all of that stuff that people really don't believe is true, like all about the sex club. Sex clubs are great because they have really good food. Not gay sex clubs, straight sex clubs. Gay sex clubs have really bad food. All they have is like hot dogs and Fanta. But for straight sex clubs, they really kind of roll out the red carpet and they do a good job in in terms of making a buffet, nice place settings and 
nice centerpieces. It's really fabulous. Even a casual chat with Margaret Cho is a sexual education. Anything you think of has already been fetishized. People fetishize the strangest things. Baked beans are fetishized. Balloons, cartoon characters, stuffed animals. Kirk and Spock are fetishized. There is definitely a connection between S&M, Star Trek, and Renaissance fairs. I notice the same people at all of these events, and it strikes me as very interesting. I think it has to do with fantasy. I think it has to do with the letting go of social mores and convention and defying culture and defying the status quo. I really admire it. I think it's really great. The cross-section that it's most apparent is in Slash. Do you know what Slash is? It's the erotica of Star Trek. This is a huge movement. It's like all over the internet and all over conventions where people get together and they write erotica about Kirk and Spock. And it's all about Kirk and Spock or any other Star Trek television show that is spun off or film. You know, all of them have Slash capability. But the most popular pairing is Kirk and Spock. People do illustrations. They do sort of Tom of Finland-esque illustrations of Kirk and Spock in flagrante delecto or whatever. They're totally this amazing subculture. And uh, I really think it's great. Although it's not her first choice of entree, women are still on her menu. I really love a very boyish girl. I love a tomboy. I love a butch lesbian. I think that butchness in women is so sexy and it's about a woman who is creating her own definition of womanhood and I find that irresistible. I love boy girls. I think that they're the greatest. Not really gay or completely straight, Cho isn't comfortable with labels. They're hard to avoid, especially for someone like me who spends so much time working as an activist on behalf of the gay and lesbian community. When My whole reasoning behind it is that you don't have to necessarily be a member in the clearest definition of the word to want to work for the cause. You know, like I'm I'm so down with gay and lesbian politics. I'm so into queer thinking and queer theory and all of the stuff that I've been indoctrinated with since I was a kid. So it is so much a part of my life. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I always sleep with women. It doesn't necessarily mean that I would identify in the real definition of, of the word gay. You know, it's just like we can work for what's right just because it's the right thing. It's a movement. It's a whole movement. I think it's really exciting. I mean, we, we are challenging people's notions of sexuality. It's not just gay, straight, bi, trans. It's, it's an incredible world. Margaret's humor is liberating, inclusive, and for her, it's always been an instrument for social change. It is a way to ease people's minds about your message, and it's a way to let people hear you without feeling like you're preaching. You know, it's, it's a good way to be political without being intimidating or boring. I ask this tireless champion of gay rights if it ever gets old. I don't think it gets old. I mean, not for me. It's just so interesting because it's so varied. I, I mean, I'm spending a lot of time now working with gay teens and going to different places and talking to different gay organizations that have, like, kids who are just coming out of the closet, you know, and they're just in college, and and they're not sure what it's going to be, you know, and they're not sure what to do about it. And 
I'm out there talking to them and working with them. And it's so rewarding, you know, and it's a totally different experience than anything I've had so far. So things are changing so rapidly anyway. I don't think that I could possibly let it go because this work is so fulfilling. I've been around gay men my whole life, and I'm so excited that there is so much gay culture in the media now with television shows like Queer as Folk and Sex in the City. It's awesome, because when we were growing up, all we had was Waylon Flowers and Madam. I hope people laugh. I hope people like it. I hope people feel good. I hope people enjoy themselves. I hope people come away with a strong message about self-reliance and self-esteem. I have a lot of hopes for this film, and some of them are pretty noble. Like, I just want people to feel good and be happy, and others are just like, I just want everybody to like me. With all her recent fame and success, is Margaret Cho still a fag hag? Such a fag hag. We'll be a fag hag forever, always. I'm devoted. I'm quite a trophy fag hag. You know, if you're like going up there, I mean, the only way you could get higher than me is to go into like really untouchable diva status that only Michael Jackson could could get to. Like we're talking Elizabeth Taylor or Cher even. But of the modern divas, I'm probably the highest up there. And what does she like best about gay men? Well, that they're all different, that they're all special, and they're all really important to me in their own way. I am a gay man trapped in a female body, but I'm not trapped. I'm, I'm in it willingly. <laughs> For more information on Notorious CHO or Margaret Cho, point your internet browser to www.margaretcho.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Introducing Miss Margaret Cho. She's the Asian valley girl who's got much to show. She kind of looks like Connie Chung, but in her own slutty way. And if gay men had a period? <laughs> what do you mean, if? It's Margaret Cho. It's Margaret Cho. It's Margaret Cho. It's Margaret Cho. The film Notorious Cho is free on YouTube. Don't go far. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hello, I am Patricia Velasquez, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. Another streaming must-see is Girl King, a portrait of the brilliant, extravagant Christina of Sweden. Queen from age six, who fights the conservative forces that are against her ideas to modernize Sweden. Abby Dees reports. 
Miko, welcome. Thank you. There have been a number of dramatizations of the life of Queen Christina, and I would say that probably the most famous in the U.S. is the movie Queen Christina with Greta Garbo. What inspired you to bring this story to the screen once again? Yeah, of course, I've seen the Queen Christina by with Greta Garbo a few times in the past, and um, I think it's a fine film. But I didn't want or intend to make any kind of a remake. I didn't even watch it again, just not to get influenced by it. I wanted to have a different take on this subject, and I saw here a um, very modern woman who could be here with us today. So, And I see so many parallels from Christina's time to today's time and uh, I think she was modern at the time and she still is modern. Can you give me an example? She was a young woman who was trying to figure out what to do with her life. I had three daughters myself so (laughs) I I know that this is something that the young women and boys too you know are doing this thing. And if you look at Europe and the world we are full of religious wars and it's a very insecure situation and uh, young people are really yeah they try to figure out what to do. Yeah, that was one of the things that was striking to me about the film, is that this is a woman trying to figure out who she is and what she believes in, but the stakes are so high because her choices affect a potential civil war, or... You know, it's at the end of the Thirty Years' War in Europe, and Europe is is divided in two based on religion. Exactly. Another thing that was very noticeable to me about the film was the frank depiction of Christina's sexuality. She was both very androgynous and publicly so, and she had affairs with women. Was it important to you to explore this facet? Yeah, I think it was so. It was so important for her. The love story with Paspare was. I'm, I'm see in her memoirs, and and when you know, she always said that she, that uh, that was her love story, the love story of her life. So it was definitely very important. And um, by the way, Greta Garbo, when we did research, uh, you know, we found out that Greta Garbo ac- actually already wanted to make have the love story with Ebba in, in the film, uh, in the 30s film, but it, Hollywood was not ready for that, you know? No, it's 1933. They gave her a, yeah. another storyline with a yeah. male romantic lead. She lived with this uh, Spanish ambassador, Azulín. She spent 20 years together, but Greta Garbo wanted to have this love story with Ebba in the film. She Somewhere she said that it's, the film is kind of silly, you know? And uh, <laughs> I like the film, but, you know, I think our film is more like what uh, Greta Garbo also wanted to do has to do also with this idea of free will, which was created by this philosopher René Descartes in those times, that people have their own will and they should follow that will to be what they want to be. That was quite important for the film. I chose this, like three things in the film. It's like the love story with Ebba and the relationship with René Descartes and his ideas, plus the relationship with his father figure and the establishment, you know, the old uh, dark men, conservative men. That was the three main elements in the film. And that very much comes through. But she abdicated at 28 years old. She really had only about 10 years in real power. She converted to Catholicism, moved to Rome, and your film ends before she goes off to Rome, I presume. Do you see her as a kind of hero, or was she a failed monarch, or was she something in the middle? I think it was something in the middle. I mean, and she certainly did what she thought was the right thing to do for herself. And she is quite controversial in Sweden, mainly in Sweden. I'm from Finland, you know. She was our queen as well. But I think in Sweden, especially, she sort of betrayed her father's faith and, you know, converted to Catholicism within those days. Was a, I mean, it was really, a, it's like 
George Bush's daughters would go to Al Qaeda or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 nowadays, yeah, a big deal. Yeah, yeah, it was a shock, you know. And of course, I can understand she's controversial, but I think she also saw that she couldn't be the queen that they wanted. Yeah. She wanted to do something else. And that's why she made this big decision. And, and that's also kind of the message of the film, that you should be true to your ideas and what you believe and not to do what the other people said you to do. So she made the right decision in a way. Also for Sweden, I, I'm sure, you know. And many people were happy that she left. Her ideas were too it radical. Is. And I, so actually, I wanted to concentrate the film in these 10 years when she becomes the queen, when she becomes 18 and then abdicates with 28. You say, at least 10 years, you like them. This is the story. And the theme of free will and grappling with everything from sexuality to religious identity. I thought that that was very powerful is the idea that you can choose your destiny, but you see her paying a price for that. Absolutely, yeah. The film Girl King got an audience award at the Montreal Film Festival this year, and your leading actress, Malin Buska, who is, I understand, an upcoming, a rising star in Sweden, she got the Best Actress Award. I saw her acting in this film described as lion-like ferocity. Yeah. She's rebellious herself. I mean, she, that's why I think she was right for the part, because she, she's not just a standard, uh, you know, actress. I mean, she, she's very quite uh, picky, and she knows what she wants, uh, or what she doesn't want, at least, you know. And so I think she felt right away like Christina. After making The Girl King, was there anything about Christina that you came to understand that perhaps you didn't understand when you started? There's so much. And we did a very elaborate research on her and of that time in general. So there's quite a lot of material about her. And everything in the film is true and documented. But there's so much material that my problem was with the screenwriter. What's the story we want to tell? She did so many things. I mean, she sang and she wrote operas and she wrote music and she played and in theaters and operas. You know, all, all this amazing energy. And, and she continued so doing that even after she abdicated. She did. And she founded this Arcadia foundation in Rome, which actually is, you know, the precursor of the Academy of Sweden, which nowadays is in charge of this Nobel Award. And her ending the 30 years war, she sort of paved the way to European Union. So she was visionary in, in many ways, even if she was a very complex person, really. But she also had had a vision as, as you know, about world and, uh, and life. Mika Kurismäki, thank you so much for bringing the story of this fascinating woman to life. I think Many of us really didn't know about her. And so I hope that this continues to encourage curiosity about her life. I certainly want to know more. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us. What's a pleasure. From Peccadillo Pictures, Girl King is streaming for free on the Tubi app. Now that we've heard about a girl who was a king, let's hear from a lady who was a queen. And I'm not talking about me. At the age of 78, Vicky Marlene still performs nightly at Aunt Charlie's Lounge in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco, arguably making her America's oldest working drag entertainer. Her journey from Minnesota farm boy to carnival worker to drag diva to grand marshal of the San Francisco Gay Pride Parade in 2003 is a lesson in perseverance that began in a very different time and place. My cousin and I, we used to be the same size and everything, so I used to go over to her house and borrow some of her dresses. And we'd go to the, every Sunday, go to the roller skating rink. 
and I'd be dressed in drag going roller skating. Well, one day this one girl from school says to me, he says, I know you, you're Donnie. I'm going to go to school and tell everybody. Well, the next day, I took her behind the tree, and I said, you tell anybody what you saw Sunday, I'll beat the crap out of you. Well, she never told anybody. <laughs> I guess she was scared. How did you end up on stage? I was 16 years old when I first did it. It was a bar in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. It was a gay bar. I used to go in there and just drink, underage, of course. And uh, they had entertainment there. And I says, well, I can do this. So I went to uh, my mother's attic and took a pair of gold damask drapes, made a strip outfit out of it, and went to the bar and says, uh, can I uh, perform? It was amateur night. And they, says, they said, sure. Well, they hired me. Well, I told my mother, and I was working there, but I didn't tell her what I was doing there. So one night, I'm on stage stripping, 17 years old. I look in the audience, and there's my mother sitting there in the audience. Well, needless to say, I was a little shocked. <laughs> but she came upstairs to the dressing room, and she told me, if this is what you want to do, just be good at it. I remember those words, because years and years later, when she was a uh, brain tumor and everything else, she didn't even want to speak to me. Uh, and I left the home crying because um, she wanted nothing to do with me. That was 1949. A dangerous time for genders of expression? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. You couldn't go in drag on the streets. If you did, you had to be wearing at least three articles of men's clothing underneath. I was arrested quite a few times. They would arrest you because of female impersonation. And I used to tell them, well, what female am I impersonating? Who? What female am I impersonating? I'm me. So they used to always put a prostitution charge onto it. I think I got about 10 prostitution charges. Well, I'd be wealthy by now if I was a prostitute that long. <laughs> but I was in jail quite a few times, I'll put it that way. It must have felt like you were in a sideshow. But later, you were in a sideshow. You joined a carnival. Oh, that was something else. A lot of places wouldn't allow us in the hotels and everything because we're show folk. So we had to sleep in the tents and everything. And if a rainstorm came on, we all run out and hold the guy ropes down to hold the tent down because if that tent went down, there was our job. But it, it was fun. It was like a, a nightclub in a tent. I put it that way quite a few times, a nightclub in a tent. What sort of things did you do in the carnival? Strip naked. You were also the alligator girl. Yes. I would take a dry glue paste, mix it, smear it all over my body, then stand perfectly still for about half an hour until it dried, and then move all the skin and everything so it all cracked and looked like it was skin peeling and cracking and everything. Take food coloring, put it in my eyes, and I was the alligator skin girl. What other jobs did you do? I was the third and fourth legs, or the lady with four legs. <laughs> oh. yeah, yes. It was a, a chair that was built so I could get underneath the chair, and they could put a cushion underneath and have the fat woman sit on top of that and have her legs sticking out and have my legs in between her legs. So it looked like it was another pair of legs growing out of this woman. And they could touch my legs, and I'd pull it back and everything so they could see that it was real human legs. Any jobs outside of entertainment? 
Oh, Lord, I was a house painter for a while in San Diego. I, I did a lot of house painting because I was, I was trying to go straight. It's interesting that you do painting as well as stripping because they go together. <laughs> Tell me about some of the clubs you've worked in over the years. Oh, Lordy. Most of them aren't even around anymore. The most fabulous club I worked in was uh, the Talk of the Town in Chicago. Crystal chandeliers. We had, it was nothing but tables and chairs, a huge, huge stage. We had a lot of celebrities come in there all the time. Yeah, in Detroit, Ethel Merman and the original cast of Gypsy came in to see our show. And when we were done with our version of Gypsy, their cast stood up and gave us a standing ovation. And then Ethel Merman got on top of the piano bar and sang, there's no business like show business. I'll take that to my grave. It was utterly fantastic. But most of the clubs weren't that fabulous. Most of them were little dingy bars, I'll put it that way. Uh, nothing fancy. Like I said, the best one was the talk of the town. The club Chesterfield was a dump. The nightlife was a dump. And Charlie's is a dump. But I love it. I've been there almost 13 years. <laughs> well, it's a small, small, small bar. We can seat 50 people, and we can have 10 standing. So 60 people is our limit in the bar. So it's not a big bar. And you're still performing there? Yes, I love it. No plans to retire? When I'm ashes. Well, that would hurt the act, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're pushing 80. You've had a colorful, amazing life. Tell me something you've learned. Don't be afraid because you're young and uh, gay. Get out and do what you want to do, as long as you don't hurt anybody. I mean, I've had a lot of experiences in my life, and it's no different than other people. I had my loves. I had my losses. I had my heartaches. I've lost my family because of my uh, way of life. But I'm still human. You mentioned love. Tell me about your greatest love. I don't know if I can talk about him. Okay, that's fine. Let's talk about something else. Your signature number in Aunt Charlie's is Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart. What is it about that particular song that speaks to you? I love it so much because it's, it's me. It's not part of it. It's not, I know, I'm falling apart and love is tonight and we got to grab it tonight or tonight's forever. And, you know, I ain't got forever. <laughs> The words are so truthful and honest. Like uh, when I, towards the end of the number, because I'm falling apart and everything, I'm taking my clothes off. I strip down to a bra and G-string with just the duster on because I fall apart. And that's how I end the song. Any regrets? Any forks in the road you think, well, maybe oh. I could have gone left and of right there? Oh, yes, a lot of regrets. <laughs> a lot of regrets. Uh but I'm, I just believe in, I believe in life. This has been a conversation with Miss Vicki Marlene. Aunt Charlie's Lounge is located at 133 Turk Street in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. And there's nothing I can do A total eclipse of the heart A total eclipse of the heart Vicki Marlene passed away in 2011 due to an age-related illness. In San Francisco, Turk Street 
between Jones and Taylor in the Tenderloin was renamed in her honor. We'll be right back after this quick break. Walt Whitman's Romantic Attachment, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. It was the winter of 1865, and there was a change in the air for poet Walt Whitman. Even his friends noticed it. He had just met a man named Peter Doyle. They had met on Whitman's way home in Washington, D.C., aboard a Washington and Georgetown railroad horse car. Doyle was the conductor, Whitman the passenger. As their bond grew, the two often took long walks together. Doyle once said, We'd stroll out together, often without a plan, going where we happened to get, off towards or to Alexandria often. We went plodding along the road, Walt always whistling or singing. He would recite poetry, especially Shakespeare. He was always active, happy, cheerful, good-natured. Whitman and the man he affectionately called Pete the Great were inseparable for five years. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Josh Behrman. Hello, I'm Desiree Akhavan, the writer, director, and actor, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. Opened in 1973, Jules Catch One was one of the first black discos in the United States and was for a long time the major black gay bar in Los Angeles. The original owner of the club was Jewel Tice Williams. We close out tonight's show in Women's History Month 2021 with a visit she had with Abby and Wenzel. She's sitting directly in front of me. It's Jewel Tice Williams, who was the owner and started up the disco Jewel's Catch One, and that was a disco for gays of color. Am I correct? Well, How do you for, want to put it? <laughs> it was for everyone, but but in particular. But that's why you did it, though. Oh, yeah, with, without a doubt. I mean, where did the name come from? I mean, I mean, I know jewel. the jewel part, but <laughs> right? Catch well, one, what? Even there's there's something to the jewel part too. But catch one was given to me by one of my friends and and patrons of the club. It was the saying that gay guys did when they were going out to the bars or to the clubs or to the streets or wherever. And it was all about catching one. <laughs> and uh, so that's how the catch one came about. And the jewels part came as I was taking my first vacation after about six or seven years of of working and the club was named Diana's before it became the Catch One. And it was built in, and opened in 1929 as um, the spot to be. And, and the Diana Ballroom was right upstairs. And it was much like the Stardust Ball back in the day. And the big bands and Ella Fitzgerald and, and uh, Nat King Cole, those type of performers performed the year too. Ballroom so dance. many people don't realize that L.A. was really a hot spot for the performers of that era, the African-American performers of that era. I mean, it was as, as big a center in many ways as Harlem was. Uh, yeah, it was. Only we weren't separated here. We were discriminated against here. Very important uh, distinction. But we weren't separated yeah. uh, as Harlem or even with Watts and, and other areas that became homes and places where African-Americans lived. It wasn't established then. So when I took my vacation, my 
sister and my then girlfriend decided it was time to lose the Diana's part. So they put jewel on the side of it and ordered mats to go and find and all with my name on it. You know, much to my chagrin because it cost money. <laughs> well, I was Diana say. was already paid for. There you go. You got a perfectly art, good sign. Art deco and, you know, it's like... Why? You know, people used to call you Diana. I didn't care. Did I mind? No. I know. I'm, my first thought, too, was, oh, great, new letterhead we're going to need now. Right. <laughs> okay. And when Pretty was much. this? When, so p- put us in time. When was this? We opened uh, Diana's Club that later became Jules Room in 1973. And in 1975, I was able to buy the building, which, of course, included the ballroom upstairs. So... The catch one was officially named that and came in with, with the opening of the larger space, the big ballroom. And, and what prompted you to take ownership of this bar in the first place? Several things happened. One was that I worked as a cashier at a market that was right across the street from the Diana Club. And some of my patrons would come in, African-American, and said, you know, they don't want us over there. We can't even stop to have a beer in the evening going home from work and whatever. And so I had, and it was just that, a fleeting thought about one of these days I'll own that place and everybody will be able to come. I wasn't a bar person. I didn't, you know, hang out. And did you intend to open it for gay people or did that just sort of happen? No, that just sort of happened. The, the intention of of the Diana's Club, which was the, a small bar that had a pool table and sawdust on the floor and and about 15 steady older white folks that had been drinking there for 20 or 30 years. That's the, the clientele that I inherited. And uh, my intention was to have a supper club. And they had live entertainment there in the downstairs years before then. There was nothing but, like I said, a pool table and, and sawdust on the floor when I took it over. So separate club, gay bar? Not really. Oh. We, we've older gays then, and and those that just that didn't hang out at the clubs would go to state clubs, you know, for the entertainment. So it was going to be a place that without... Uh, brand on it, mm-hmm. but needless to say, shortly after I arrived, you know, everybody says it's a gay club <laughs> over there. Well, is it just because all okay. your friends came, or friends and anybody? Yeah. You know, we used to have this uh, saying, you know, when you're going to open something or you were having a special event, and they said telephone, telegraph, tell a sissy. <laughs> so <laughs> it didn't that take, was a slow burn. It took me a second. <laughs> it didn't take long for the word to get out, which was fine with me because I didn't have to pretend anymore. Nice. When this uh, is on Pico and Crenshaw, Crenshaw, well, okay. two blocks east of Crenshaw. Oh, okay, Pico okay. And Norton. Okay. I mean, when did you realize that this had gone beyond a club and became kind of a community center? It kind of evolved without me really forcing the issue or mm-hmm. whatever. Once I opened the uh, upstairs, which was official Catch One, and it became an official gay and lesbian spot then, folks came. And then eventually, because of the sexual revolution that had just preceded that and was just kicking off, then it became 
that place where folks wanted to deal with political issues, economic issues. So one of the first things that happened was it was a black gay men's uh, rap. They used to call it rap groups then. That, and then from then on, there was a ULOA, United Lesbians of African Heritage, and, and then AA meetings. And, and what happened to your original clientele? Did they just stop coming, or did they keep coming anyway? Some of them stopped coming immediately, like I said. It was just a, a handful of them. And what did amaze me, there wasn't a lot of things to amaze me, but what did amaze me was the fact that there were some that stayed. And not only did they stay, started to integrate with with the the con- so I had these older and when I say older I'm talking about seventies and eighties and, <laughs> and that kind of Caucasian folks dealing with the younger black clientele. Now I know how important bars are to a lot of gay culture. Did you find that you had a lot of young gay people coming in and finding a home there and, and you became sort of a godmother to a generation? Mm, I, I was just Called that last night. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I've heard this more than once about you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Claim it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, Phil Wilson, who was a leader in the, in the AIDS community anyway, and has been for a long, long time. He also started a, a group called uh, the National Gay and Black Gay and Lesbian Leadership Forum, um, which goes back to what you were asking about mm-hmm. about the other groups that came out of the early days of the Catch One. He had uh, mentioned that fact, I guess, <laughs> that, that I, I mean, was. Does that, it's funny, because I know that you've been involved in the HIV crisis. Yeah. You've been involved with youth, with gay yeah. youth, and, you know, LGBT youth. And, and you've been through the crises of our community. But I can't imagine that you were thinking when you were opening up your club, that this was what you were going to do. Did you ever kind of think, wait, I didn't sign up for all this? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, in fact, I always felt that it was my privilege, my honor to have been chosen by the universe or whatever to be in a position to be able to do that. It was something that I felt needed to be done, and it fed right into my personality. I never had kids of my own, and so when I could say, oh, yeah, I have about 50 or 60, somebody asked me, you have kids? Yeah, about 50 or 60, the last count, (laughs) and about 20-something grandchildren, and, you know, so it fed into that instinct of my wanting to be a mother and caretaker anyway. It came to you? Uh Uh-huh. I mean, you set this, you sort of sowed the ground, and it grew, and it came to you, to mix my metaphors. (laughs) Now, before you gave it a place to find a home and grow, where did gay black culture go before you opened your bar? Because it certainly wasn't invented in 73. No, there were some bars downtown that were pickup bars, and there were smaller clubs in, in L.A. City, and there was one in Inglewood called Papa Bears, and there was a club further down on Crenshaw called Centerfield. There were several clubs already yeah. going, going you, on. You were the respectable establishment? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, and also, you know, we have a tendency to flock to what's new and what's different, and then once 
folks came to the new spot, and it usually killed, you know, some of the smaller ones, unfortunately. People would stop going to them and just come to my place. And, when I read and, you had kind of a celebrity following there. Like Sharon Stone at her peak could go to your club, and um, nobody would hassle her. Right. Well, as I told her, because I had the privilege of meeting her and talking to her, and she was saying that she could go in there and nobody bothered her. I said, well, no, because... You know, the gay guys felt like they were the stars, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and probably wondered why she didn't ask him for, they didn't, she didn't ask them for their autograph. You know, there was that sense of freedom that they had, and they just... And did Madonna do a release party there? Yeah, she I mean, did. it was big. Yeah, yeah. Madonna was a regular before the release party, though. And, oh. and In fact, she hadn't been there in two or three years, and, and I was really, really amazed and honored and flabbergasted and any other word that you can think of to describe what I felt when she sent the word out that she had selected our club of all the ones in the world to have this uh, record release party. So that was really kind of an overwhelming feeling. I want to be clear, though, you didn't just run a club. I mean, this and this did turn to a community center, but this also was the beginning of you starting doing work to help with substance abuse yes. and opening up a center. And did you identify a need? What prompted you to take it to the next step, to start doing work beyond just running that club and running other organizations and businesses? Probably just listening to the people and then getting or having a sense about what was needed and and uh, what I would want to What were you seeing to. the need at the time? What were the needs that you were noticing? Initially, just a place where they could come and be who they were. And at the time, it was Studio One, which was uh, the big gay club, big gay disco that, um, you know, folks wanted to go to, and, and they weren't welcome there. So to have as big a space, and, of course, it wasn't nearly as elaborate because I didn't have that kind of money, but mm-hmm. but we had the space, and we had the banging this music, and folks could come and be themselves and not have to worry about being harassed and acting any differently than they would, you know, if they had, were at a house party. What were the demographics of the crowd like through the years? Did, I mean, I assume they all started out kind of young, and did they stick with you in age along with the bar? Or was mm-hmm. there always a big turnover and you had new faces all the time? Or On the contrary, we were 21 and over. Mm-hmm. And like I said, there wasn't a place for some of the elders, especially professional guys, the dentists, the doctors, the judges, the lawyers, the teachers, the principals, the preachers. Uh, wasn't a place where they could go, where they could maybe be underground and, and not recognized because it was 21 and over. And so I had folks from the very beginning that were from 21 to to 75 or 80. So a gay bar where you could meet a doctor, sign me up. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For serial dentists, you, you name it, judges. Since then, you, you're an acupuncturist now. Um, you've been very involved. You've been an advocate for health and yes. health for LGBT people and health care for African Americans. Yes. Your own experience. So 
you are definitely involved. I mean, is this to you the biggest issues, health access to health care and proper health care that is facing our communities? Yes, I do believe that. And what do you think needs to happen? What would you like to see happen? Some time to go by. Because <laughs> 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 usually that's the case with any yeah. change. It just it just takes time. But I would like to see a change in the health care system. Mm-hmm. I would like to see uh, Medicare be available to complementary medicine practitioners like myself, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a big need with older people to get a more conscious and justified uh, system that would serve them and be concerned about their well-being more so than just that they're a number and, and the government, if somebody's going to pay or they're going to pay, and uh, it doesn't matter that you're on one blood pressure right. medication. You suddenly lose uh, your You know, you don't have teenage medica- yeah, blood pressure, so therefore we're going to give you four more and not be concerned about the side effects of what it does. Primarily when you go to the doctor now, they sit up with a computer to hardly right. look at you in your eyes or whatever. You don't even have to say, ah, anymore. <laughs> you know, I, lo- I used to look forward to that <laughs> and feeling that close stethoscope that on my back. actually you know, touching like, you and engaging with you. Yeah. Yes, putting yeah. their hands on your yeah. body what in about a healing that? way. What about that? And yeah. who needs to be touched more than older people? Yeah. For sure. Jewel Tice Williams, truly one of our L.A. heroes and... Keep going. Thank you. Thank you for the <laughs> Keep invite. Keep going. Thank you Appreciate so much it. for coming. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And remember, we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. We close with a song from Nadia Veja about social anxiety perpetuated by societal systems and social media. Good night. Advertisements scroll like pavement. Max us out like credit cards. Don't pay them. Everything is fine. I love myself online. I never have to leave the basement. I eat the same thing every single week. Trying to do new sh- Same on me. Coffee in a shower. Sitting in my towel. Hey. Always wake up in these old sh- Dress the way I do Comfy with the side of nothing new Advertisements grow like pavement Max is not like credit cards Don't pay them Everything is fine I love myself online I never have to leave the basement Get home and toss my shoes right off Try and put my phone down News won't stop
Taking off my makeup, stage my place and stay up. Hey, pour myself a glass of wine. Talk in the mirror like everything's fine. Tell me where the time's gone. Tell me where I went wrong. Hey, same day, different week. I'm always trying to do new things. I still dress the way I do. So many distractions in my mind